Hey everybody, welcome back on the macro trading floor. This is Alf speaking. Today, my co-host, and not only today, but basically forever, is my buddy, Andreas. How are you doing, Andreas? Good, and uh, good to see you again, Alf. Um, I'm live here from Cayman Islands this week, uh, so a bit hotter and more humid than I'm used to, but I'm, I'm getting through it. <laughs> well, you know, uh, in Cayman Island, they don't have natural gas usage problem this time of the year. Also, Europe didn't have one uh, so far. Uh, things are getting a bit cooler over here. Uh, but Andreas, I would say the um, news of the day, as we are recording um, on the 11th of, no, 10th of November, is that the CPI print was out in the US and month-on-month -month core CPI was 0.27%, which is the lowest month-on-month -month print since summer 2021, all the way back there. And markets are opening up the champagne of the risk parity rally. Anything is rallying, Andreas, bonds, gold, silver, equities, ARC is up 13% on the day. It's done, Andreas. It's over. It's a new bull market. What do you say? Uh, my good old friend Kathy is at least happy today. Kathy Woods from ARC. But I, I mean, let's, let's take a step back and look at the data. Um, so I've been saying for a couple of months that we should expect um, sort of a clash between goods disinflation or maybe even outright good deflation versus goods, sorry, services inflation. And this is exactly what we're seeing in my view. Um, so we've actually seen um, a, a crossing on the charts between goods inflation and services inflation uh, in core terms. So now it's, it's basically services driving the show. Uh, and we know that services um, are more sticky by nature. Uh, we know that they are to a larger extent based on surveys that are backward, uh, backwards looking. Uh, so I would expect the service trend to continue, basically. Uh, if you look at the most important component of the service uh, cost basket, um, the rent of shelter cost, it increased, was it 0.6% month over month again? Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, this part of the inflation story is not over, clearly not. Um, but the, the, the issue here is here, how do you balance a picture with uh, sliding prices in goods due to a, a less stressed global supply chain and uh, even demand destruction ongoing in, in parts of the world at least with this very inflationary service picture. And when I try to sort of map those two things together, I end up with my models predicting uh, some sort of stabilized level of inflation in between four and five now for the first half of next year, uh, which is obviously still way too much. Uh, so. I'm probably in the camp that um, refuses to celebrate that 7.7% inflation is something to, to cheer about. And that's a very good summary, Andreas. I mean, used cars were one of the largest drivers of the downside surprise. Uh, core goods are finally being repriced down. And we talked about that for a while now. It was only a lagged um, result basically an evidence in core CPI. It's finally here, but core services are not slowing down. They're lagging, as you just said. So it's going to take a while, which basically means that mechanically speaking, when you look at core inflation, let's leave aside oil and food and all that stuff. But let's talk about core inflation. Basically, mechanically speaking, you're looking at that divergence, you say, and if you pull everything together between now and maybe May, June next year, you're still looking at levels of 
annualized trends in core inflation roughly in the 4% area. It's going to be very hard to drop below that. Um, that's simply because rent of shelter and other core services will remain sticky as they act as a lagging indicator of what happened in 2021 in house prices, for example, right? So the question is basically uh, what happens after that? I think it's one question. And there I believe that the recession we will be facing in 2023 will inevitably bring inflation down like it did in all 14 instances of every recession in the US over the last 100 years, it always managed to bring inflation down significantly, actually seven percentage points from the peak. Um, I think we will see something like that, the solid demand destruction that will also cool down services prices in the second half of next year. But between now and the second half of next year, it's a long way to go. And today you already had many Fed members going to the wire and making sure that they convey the message that they're not going to allow major loosening of financial conditions and the markets to get ahead of themselves when it comes to celebrating this. But there are also seasonal reasons, I think, why this equity and bond rally is actually uh, being so vicious and strong. So do we want to chat about that too? Sure, but I want to add one thing before we uh, go to the seasonality discussion. Uh, I find it, um, if not scary, then at least amusing that less than 24, 24 hours after uh, the probably the biggest blow up in, in the history of crypto, um, people are starting to tr trade monkey JPEGs again, just because inflation slowed a bit month over month. I mean, I, I cannot state this clearly enough. It is not the time to take excessive risks again. I don't think it is. Um, and even though inflation fades, um, it is not a green flag for central banks to just allow the animal spirits to resurface. Uh, I think the animal spirits will give it a very decent attempt, uh, also given the seasonality effects that you just mentioned of. Uh, but by the end of the day, if we don't stick to the narrative that we cannot allow excessive risk taking through a period of high inflation, then I think we risk a so-called double top picture. And we've seen that before in history uh, for, for inflation, right? We saw that in the uh, 70s, 80s. Uh, I don't necessarily think that we're in a similar scenario, um, sort of fundamentally, but every time inflation has been as high as now, um, say close to 10% at peak, uh, there is a clear risk that if you don't do the right things, then inflation will reaccelerate because you simply don't have supply demand in check as soon as demand picks up again. You're so right. And uh, one of the mistakes, one of the little mistakes that Volcker did in his inflation fight was to ease, ease basically and loosen his belt on fighting inflation too early, which then demanded him to basically do even more later on. And uh, Powell keeps saying he will keep at it, not by coincidence, because keeping at it is the name of Volcker's book. So, I mean, the guy doesn't want to make the same mistake and he will make sure I think he doesn't commit the same mistake. When it comes to animal spirits, I had a bit of a look back and people always act the same, Andreas. It's really surprising, but 1989, the Imperial Palace of Tokyo was worth more than California. What? I mean, Japan was basically the place to be and the real estate market in Japan would never stop, remember? And after that, we had a crash and it never recovered. 1999, anything with a dot-com after the name of the company, you would buy that at 150 times earnings if it had any earnings in the first place, which in most cases he didn't, actually. So that was ridiculous. 2007, people buying five houses in the US, no income, variable rate mortgages, uh, adjustable rate mortgages. And that was considered to be fine. 2021, 
you know, altcoins, anything which is a revolutionary tech thing trades at 100 times earnings. And now we have deflated most of that move. And at the very first episode of month on month inflation slowing down a bit, we send this stuff back up again to the moon. And the crypto um, debacle that you just discussed on FTX is very large. And it's, it's very systematically important thing for the industry itself. We're talking about the largest, the second largest exchange actually going belly up and um, people losing quite a lot of unsecured money deposited there. And the day after you have a massive rally in the space. That's that's a good point from your side. It's really mesmerizing. Yeah, it, it, it truly is. Um, and let, let me add that um, if you're right, Alf, that Powell will actually stick to the narrative, um, remain tighter for longer or higher for longer, uh, just to ensure that the animal spirits will not resurface as soon as inflation drops a little bit, as we see right now, then I think we need to uh, look for quite outdated playbooks in, in terms of how to position an equity space for the subsequent period. Um, because I essentially think that a lot of the stuff that we've gotten used to buy in equity space over the past five years uh, will have a tough time convincing the market of the valuation relative to the cash flow generation of the underlying business in, for example, the software sector uh, or other parts of the technology sector. Uh, so they will simply, in a scenario with prolonged higher interest rates, a higher discount yield, have to grow their way slowly but surely back into the valuations, basically. Uh, that's a big difference from what right. we saw over the past three years. And one area of the economy um, which is almost certain, I'd say, to generate solid cash flows um, is the whole industrial segment. Uh, I think quite clearly, at least in Europe, we have three to five years of extreme investment in infrastructure ahead of us. We need to yeah. build new LNG capacity, so liquid natural gas. Uh, we need to build new pipeline capacity from Spain and upwards in Europe, stuff like that. Good old school industrial demand. And I think it's a decent like three to five year play to overweigh stuff that is linked to the industrial cycle mm -hmm. instead of the whole booming technology sector. Well, Andreas, if the government and policymakers are throwing money at something, who are we uh, to piss against the wind? Basically, it's a similar it's a similar story to don't fight the Fed. And, you know, Powell will be pissed about this rally and people buying this rally. They might want to do that for seasonal reasons. And we didn't talk about that, but it's a relevant thing. I mean, when I was in the industry and you had a good year because you were short the bond market and the equity market this year, for example, and then comes November, Andreas, and it's uh, you know, time to look at your bonus, which is generally a percentage of your PL or linked to it, right? And then the only thing you don't want is that there is a face ripping rally in bonds and equities, and you are not positioned for that, and your PL gets smashed down. So you're going to be actually hedging your, uh, your downside risks, which in this case is a large bond market rally and an equity rally, not because you believe fundamentally in it, but because you don't want to taint your P&L that year and you still want to get paid the bonus that you deserved between January and November. So there is a lot of institutional, basically, um, yeah, window dressing, if one wants to say about it, their own, uh, their own bonuses. There are a lot of seasonal as well, tax related stuff going on in the US. These, these are reasons, actually, tactically speaking, why the market might continue a rally, but you're literally trading against Powell. I mean, you are trading against a guy that doesn't want these animal spirits to resurface. So I would be a bit careful about that. Maybe time to uh, call our guest in? Yeah.
So guys, today the guest of the macro trading floor is my dear friend Brent Donnelly. Brent is the president of Spectrum Markets, the author of AMFX, which is an amazing daily newsletter. And he's a guy that took a lot of risks in different buy-side seats in the street for I think more than a decade, Brent, becoming old here. How are you doing, Brent? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I mean, it's been multiple decades at this point, which is kind of difficult to believe, but true. <laughs> hey, we have the same amount of hair, Brent. Yeah, same exactly. Hair. Yeah, good genetics. <laughs> so uh, having a chat a bit about crypto before we went online, and this is the macro trading floor. So normally I tend to ask people about their macro view or the Fed or inflation or rates. Now let's start from this crypto saga of FTX and um, Binance. So what do you make of uh, the crypto environment right now and how does that impact macro? Sure, so I think it's a really interesting topic because crypto and macro were pretty like entwined, intertwined in late, especially as late 2021 happened. You had an ecosystem that was $3 trillion and growing. And I mean, you can't ignore that, right? I mean, gold's what, 10, 11 trillion? So crypto at 3 trillion and growing fast was an absolutely huge influence. And you had, you know, almost tick for tick correlation between NASDAQ and Bitcoin. Um, and that wasn't a coincidence. I mean, people started viewing Bitcoin as a, a risky asset, essentially, right? Or a hedge for loose monetary policy. And so, unfortunately, I think for, for people that actually care about crypto as a technology or as, a, as an asset even, I think institutionalization uh, or institutional inflows was like the worst possible thing to happen for crypto because essentially then it just became part of the big Wall Street blob and it didn't really have any unique characteristics. It just ends up being another, you know, you might as well be trading NASDAQ futures um, because they're more liquid and, and there's no on-ramp and fees and all that stuff. So that said, so I'm talking about when crypto was 3.1 trillion, now it's like 800 billion. So it's big, but it's not as big as it was. And if you count up all the employees, it, you know, maybe you get to 50,000 in the US or something. So it's, I don't think it's systemic anymore. Whereas like it kind of was quasi systemic before when Luna was happening in that, um, you know, there are hedge funds that are in those products and when they get killed, they stop out of all their other risky stuff, right? Because people tend to do baskets of things that are all somewhat correlated. This time, I'm not as convinced that it's, it's a real contagion story. Um, I think FTX going under is horrible for crypto just because many viewed FTX as the gold standard, right? They were the six months or not even six months ago, we were talking about SBF as the JP Morgan of our generation. He's on the cover of magazines, the next Warren Buffett, uh, which by the way is a curse. If anyone ever says you're the next Warren Buffett, run away screaming. Um, so I, I think this is like almost fatal for confidence in crypto simply because, you know, it goes back to the, the more maximalist people say, not your keys, not your coins, which I know you know what that means, but in case anyone doesn't, um, essentially means any crypto that's on an exchange, you don't own it. The exchange owns it. The exchange owns it, and they can use it to bet. They can use it to gamble and borrow and leverage. And that's what FTX was doing, which, to me, is a huge shock because they had already won the game. Like once you win the whole game, you're supposed to take your chips and, and go away. But instead, they like found new players and started gambling with the chips that they had. They had ten billion dollars of 
of arbitrage money from uh, arbing the, the different crypto exchanges very successfully. And then they tried to create you know money out of thin air and borrow against it, and, and that was the end of that. So to me, the, the reputation of crypto takes a massive hit. Um, it's a little bit scary for, for animal spirits. So like there could be some volatility around it, but I don't think it's like a systemic contagion story the way I think it was from three trillion down to one trillion. Because it's kind of similar to ARC, right? Where the, once something goes down a certain percent, it's just whatever it's doing just doesn't matter as much. Like no one cares what Peloton's doing anymore because it's just not part of the the zeitgeist anymore. It's a bit brand-like in uh, late 2000, beginning of 2001, from my perspective, where in 2000, basically, you wiped out the excesses of the dot-com bubble. And this time, you wiped out the excesses in, you know, stocks trading at 50 times sales or 100 times earnings, right? And so that's like a uh, blanket drawdown in all these high beta stocks and also in the crypto space. But now we are a little bit looking into idiosyncratic issues here and there, like they're popping up uh, it looks to me a bit like a second leg of a bear market where it's a slow grind, as we were discussing before the show, but I want to get your take there, with some idiosyncratic issues popping up rather than um, a whole blanket risk-off event like we saw in 2022. So when we look at the broader bear market in, in equities, but even in bonds to a certain extent, but let's talk about equities for a second. How do you see that evolving going forward? So equities, and I know you and I don't always agree on everything. Uh, I'll just put that out there. So I'm not just saying this because you, I know you're going to agree, but, um, but we're on the same page in terms of the analogy to 2000, 2001, um, I think is very strong. I mean, I wrote a piece today about the stadium naming curse. Um, it's absolutely mind-blowing how all the mistakes made in 2000 were all made again in 2021 the exact same way, right? FTX sponsored a stadium. That was a high. Um, and that's not hindsight. I mean, people were saying at, at the time when they when they sponsored the stadium. But the feature of, of that bear market was, which is a feature that you haven't seen in a while. Um, and if you think about, okay, 2000 is 22 years ago. And if you were, you know, say people don't start in the business till they're 20, that means nobody under 42 has seen like a normal bear market, right? So 2008 was a, was a financial crisis, like once in a lifetime type of thing. V-shaped bottom where they change the rules and they stimulate the hell out of it to get the patient back off life support. 2020 wasn't a real bear market. It was a flash crash basically, right? You just buy the dip and you make money. So most people in this generation of financial traders are Pavlovian by the dippers because that's what's, what has essentially worked for their entire lifetimes and it's worked for a long time. But that works because the Fed will pivot at the first sign of danger. So the simplest model for Fed funds predicting when they were going to stop hiking was a 20% drawdown in stocks. Um, and even as, as recently as 2018, right? And I remember in 2018, stocks had drawn down 20%, but the economy was still doing well. And one guy was out ahead of it and said, like, you yeah, know, stocks are down 20%. The Fed's going to cut within the next six months. And I was thinking, like, that's kind of simplistic. Like, the economy's not doing anything. So as if the Fed's that reactive. And guess what? June 2019, the Fed cut. So that has been the, the, the regime that we've been in, but we're not in that regime anymore because inflation, in my opinion, will remain somewhat high. Um, and also institutions like the Fed will always fight the last war because you know that's the safest, the least career risk is 
to not make the same mistake twice, right? If you if you make the same mistake and say it's transitory again, you're going to look like an absolute idiot. If you stay tight for too long, you go, well, you know, we couldn't have known that inflation was going to come off. So to me, I think rates will stay sticky, inflation will stay sticky. And then you get, so to answer your question, then you get more of a, a traditional bear market, which is a slow grinding path to despair, where everyone just gives up on equities and thinks they're a stupid asset class. And like, even in 03, so we bottomed in October 2020, uh, sorry, October 2002 was the bottom of the NASDAQ bear market. And the peak was what, March 2000. So that's, that's more than two years it took for it to come off. Um, think about how much pain there is there. And then when Google went public in 03, even though the stocks had bottomed, obviously nobody knew that at that time. Um, nobody was going to buy the Google IPO, even though everyone used Google because they're like, oh, this is a company that doesn't make money. You know, they're just like a moonshot kind of, I'm not burning more cash. These companies all burnt all their cash. and I'm not going to do that again. So I think we're going to head towards that. And it'll be a very long and slow and drawn out process where we're in a bear market, but it's not the bear market of crisis and, and tail risk. It's the bear market of just like exhaustion and despair. Um, and I think the same thing for crypto, you just end up in this winter of you know disillusionment where people think it's a failed, failed place to put your money. And then obviously then, like in 1979, when Business Week said the death of equities on their cover, those are the times to buy, but I don't think we're anywhere close to that right now. Yeah, I have to say we share a bit the analogy and uh, with 2000, 2001 and the view there, Brent. But what could change this is a data-driven, justified uh, Fed pause, if you ask me. Pivot is an abuse term. Pivot means changing direction, cutting rates. Well, Powell made sure to tell us that the hardware is very high for them to cut rates, but at least a pause could come earlier and surprise the forward pricing in bond market on the downside, which is seen as by many, actually by almost everybody, as undoubtedly bullish risk assets. So I have some doubts on that, and I would like to ask you a couple of questions regarding this pause. But first, inflation. That's like the most important driver out here. So if I look at forward inflation market, it's basically pricing CPI in the US at 3% in 12 to 15 months. Reminder, we are above 7.5-8%, rough something like that today. So it's a sharp drop being priced over the next 12 to 15 months by inflation break-evens. What do you make of the inflation story ahead? Yeah, I feel like those specific indicators tend to be very sticky at the old, like, 2-3%. Like, I feel like they've been pretty persistently wrong. So, I, I mean, I just disagree. Like, I just don't think inflation is going to come down that fast. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of psychological elements to inflation where you have a product, like say you're a restaurant in my town, and think about up until a year and a half ago, the idea of raising prices wasn't even a thing, right? It wouldn't even enter into your mind. Now they're like, oh, we moved the, you know, halibut from 26 to $28 and people are still buying the same amount. Let's try 30, let's try 32. So there's like a little bit of infl embedded inertia. Um, and then wages have been going up, cost of living increase on the, on, um, on uh, social security is 8.7% this year. So there's like some lags and momentum in, in inertia, I think in inflation. And the other thing I think that's really important is that you can read all this stuff about inflation that you want. Nobody knows, nobody understands where this inflation is totally coming from, right? It's like um, Adam Tooze, I don't know if you read his yeah. stuff, but 
he writes about this concept of the poly crisis, um, which I think is a good framework for the inflation right now, which is there's so many different factors affecting it and they're rolling and they're coming on and off. One day it's used cars, but then used cars come off. It was wheat. Now wheat comes off oil, then oil comes off. But yet still we have all this inflation. So now it's like uh, owner's equivalent rent, which is lagging. And Zillow rents are collapsing, but are they really? I don't know. Rate of change is collapsing, but I don't know if the actual prices are collapsing. So I feel like the un our understanding of inflation and what is causing it. I mean, just talk to 20 economists and you get like 26 different explanations, right? So I feel like... I'm saying this that I think inflation is going to be sticky, but I'm open-minded. I mean, maybe it just crashes back to zero. Like I don't, I don't see that being impossible. Like look at the momentum in some of the things, um, some of the price series, and then OER starts coming off. But my feeling is that it will be more like 2000, um, where inflation is sticky, and so the Fed is sticky, and so like you said, there is no pivot anytime soon, because. Even if we get down to three, say we get, I, I think they probably tolerate three, three and a half percent inflation at this point. I think they would actually enjoy that, even though they'll never admit it. Um, but they're, they're still going to be on hold at that point. They're not going to be cutting into 3.4%, you know, core PCE or whatever. So I, to me, I think the Fed stays on hold and the balance of evidence would have to be pretty dramatic. So recently, like we've seen a big spike in layoffs, obviously, again, from the tech sector, which was the leader in April 2022 as well. Um, but there's still a big question whether that flows through to the data, because in April, there were a lot of layoffs, but the, those jobs just got absorbed because there's a shortage, right? So my guess is probably like it starts showing up in the data, but I, I don't know. I, I, maybe, maybe the U.S. labor market shortage is so dramatic that it's going to take another six months or eight months before we see that. And then you have like, okay, declining rates of inflation relative to what you had, but you still have a pretty tight labor market. And um, and a Fed that's now going to, after making, after generally being accused of too low for too long for the last 20 years, or at least the last 14 years, is now probably going to be too high for too long. So Brent, uh, hearing you discussing and elaborating these thoughts on inflation, um, makes me wonder about the Fed reaction function because the bond market is pricing, looking at software futures or euro dollar futures, basically 5% Fed funds all the way through the end of 2023. And by hearing you talking, it seems you don't necessarily disagree as this being a base case of a Fed remaining very sticky throughout next year. What makes me think a lot is, wow, 5% risk-free rates available for people. I mean, that's yeah. been a while. It's also huge, right? Europe, the, ECB, the ECB following the same kind of approach or a similar one means European risk-free rates at 3%. I mean, that's something that has been seen last time in 2007 in Europe. It's been a long time. And also, if you look at short-dated credit, like good stuff, double-A um, rated, that it's like 6% yields. So how does that change the mindset of an asset allocator? You have been in those institutional seats in the past. So how does it how does it change institutional behavior? Well, I mean, it definitely changes institutional and retail behavior, right? Like, and if you think about, it's not just a local thing. So, like in Brazil, Selic is sixteen percent or fourteen percent. People can get risk free fourteen percent um, or even real six percent guaranteed in Brazil, for example. So, you know, those people that were those people were buying 
Nasdaq and stuff too, right? Everyone was buying Nasdaq because it was like the golden child. <laughs> um, so to me, higher risk-free rates just create like a permanent dampener on retail demand and institutional demand for equities because you're always going to be comparing, right? So if you can get, and then as an individual, if you're somewhat conservative, the whole point of QE essentially was to force people out the risk curve, right? That was the point of zero rates is like, okay, I'm conservative, but like, this is ridiculous. I can't leave my money at zero. So I'm going to buy high yield. I'm going to buy equities. I'm going to buy whatever long duration assets. And so the reversal of that, which, you know, essentially that mentality and that forced, that forcing of like Bernanke forcing everyone out the risk curve, really like that's 10 years of psychology that's built up. Right. And so people aren't like now, I, I mean, if you ask somebody on the street where, what risk-free rates, I bet you a lot of people would still think they're zero. Um, so like, I think that's part of why things lag is that information and behavior doesn't change overnight. I think it's going to be a prolonged, and that's part of why I'm bearish for the next, like for 2023 is that I think slowly people will be waking up to that, um, including myself, right? Like, you know, if I look at some of the growth stuff that a U.S. growth that I probably still have sitting in my 401k, and I don't look at it every day. I barely ever look at it because I'm just trading. My trading is completely separate from my 401k because that can be a very disastrous habit. Um, so when I look at my 401k at the turn of the year, I'm going to look at, and there's still going to be growth stuff in there. And I'm going to say, you know what? This is stupid. I'm just going to move this into 4.5% 4, 4 guaranteed. Yeah lock it down for two years and you know, I'll see you in 2024 and I'll make an, a new decision and at the, that point. The other thing, Brian, that that causes actually is borrowing rates become basically inaccessible by any recent standard for the private sector, be it mortgage, be it corporate borrowing rates. Um, so when it comes to mortgages, it really makes me think about the next marginal buyer in the housing market. And there are places that have been that have created a massive wealth effect, the Netherlands, Australia, Canada, uh, to, to name a few, but there are many more, where this, this marginal buyer who found cheaper and cheaper mortgage rates, cheaper and cheaper credit to access the market, now gets completely priced out by the reverse effect of that because mortgage rates are way too expensive uh, and house prices, spot house prices are still way too high and the combination with two especially is completely unaffordable. So what happens in the housing market? So there's two impacts that are that are different but related. So to me, the like two big ones that matter. The first one is that a big percentage of some economies rely on the real estate market, right? Like residential investment and all the things that come with it, like going to the Home Depot to buy the stuff and all that. Um, that's a huge part of the economies. It varies, like say directly, it's like five percent of U.S. and eight percent of Canada. But then add the indirect, and you can get up pretty high, especially in Canada. So that's one thing is just like there's a direct impact where residential fixed investment is probably going to go down. But then there's this indirect thing in some countries and the U.S. is kind of exempt from this, which is a major point, I think, um, but is mortgage resets. So, for example, a friend of mine in the U.K., his mortgage is fifteen hundred pounds right now and it's about to reset to fifty five hundred pounds. And that's not an outlier. That's like. His, he got his mortgage when the base rate was negative and now the base rate's gonna be three or four or whatever. Um, so that is happening in, that will start to happen in Canada as well. Um, and a lot of countries, the countries you listed as well. And I, uh, oddly enough, really it's the US that's exempt from that because mostly it's, it's government subsidized 30 year mortgages tend to be the norm in the US. 
Um, whereas in Canada, ironically, when rates were super, super crazy low in 2020 and, and 2021, so the point where rates were the lowest and the most housing activity was happening, more people went to variable than ever before, which is the worst possible time, because the spread of variable to fixed widened. So if you don't really like, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but if, you, if all you're caring about is your mortgage payment, then you took a variable rate mortgage at zero, like when rates were basically zero. So all that activity happened in late 2020 and early 2021. And generally most of those are three year fixed and then they reset. So sometime late 2023, early 2024, you're going to get this massive wave, like a cliff in Canada of resets. And then, I mean, anyone watching this can understand if your mortgage payment or your rent payment is 2K right now and it's going to 6K, that's not going to be good for discretionary spending. Um, so I, I feel more bearish about those countries than I do about the U.S. The other thing, too, is that if you look at the standard ratios of consumer debt and things like that, or just look at like how high were people reaching for homes, um, Canada is much, much worse than the U.S., right? Like the U.S. took the hit in 08. People took the pain. They delevered. They learned the lesson. Canada never took any pain. In fact, housing prices pretty much never even went down, um, despite calls of like bubble as early as 2012, 2013. Like the front of the main news magazine in Canada in 2013 ran a like the housing bubble is about to crash. That's 2013. We're nine years later. Things have like tripled since then. Some some houses have tripled in Toronto. So I think the resets thing is a big deal for discretionary spending, although it's it's a it's kind of like this looming thing that it doesn't hit all at once. It hits each time someone has to reset their mortgage. And then the direct hit to residential fixed investment and construction. And, you know, think about if you're a real estate broker, mortgage broker, you literally don't have a job anymore. If, if you're a if you're the person that works in in like Toronto Dominion Bank at doing refis, you don't have a job anymore. Um, so I think that's going to be a big deal for 2023 um, and 2024 probably as well. So when it comes to Canada, I wrote uh, a piece a while ago on the Macro Compass that looked at some of these vulnerable geographies. Let's say. What really impressed me back then, Brent, was that if I overlay private sector debt as percentage of GDP in Canada and Japanese private sector debt during the real estate bubble in Japan, where you remember the Imperial Palace of Tokyo was worth more than California. So those levels of private sector debt, Canada today is a higher private sector debt to GDP than Japan at the peak of the real estate. I mean, I saw that chart and I was like, holy crap. You know, it's a fun fact is um, just speaking of that Japan, how crazy Japan was to give people an idea. The top 10 companies by market cap in the world were all Japanese in 1990. And I mean, that's it's almost comparable to now with the with the tech. Right. But anyways, but, but if I story. think of this level of private debt, the short tenor nature of the mortgage market or short tenor or anyway, variable rate mortgage refinancing share, which is relatively high um, in Canada. If I think of the fact that the Bank of Canada is facing similar inflationary pressures, it's not going to be easy for them to just say, look, we're going to cut rates and facilitate all this process. If I look at the residential uh, fixed investments going down and the hit to consumer spending, as you said, it doesn't look particularly good for Canada overall. We can make the same case or a similar one maybe for Australia, but let's jump into your trade idea at this point of the interview, which uh, please feel free to elaborate about. Sure. So it's it's a little bit complex and we'll get into that. Um, the execution. So like we've spoken about this before and you write about it sometimes. But the 
having a macro thesis and then finding the structure and the and the the way or sort of the expression of that thesis and then making money those are really three different things right like you can you can expect inflation but if you have the wrong expression and the wrong structure then it doesn't matter so you can i can expect canada to underperform but if i do it wrong i'm not going to make money so the 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 notion here is to be short canada in in a few different ways um and i think that way you kind of protect yourself from the the issue of poor structure and just to briefly explain um so the simple thing that normal people would do in if they are bearish canada is they would buy dollar canada so long us dollars short canada um but the issue with that is that the us dollar is essentially um can often be a risk proxy so it very often if s&p's go down the dollar goes up um this isn't always true but it's it's relatively true these days and then um at the same time you have other factors like rates and and general dollar strength or weakness that can factor into dollar canada so when you do dollar canada specifically you have a lot of us centric risk you, you know, what happens in the us is really going to dominate um more than canada so what i like to do is find currencies that um i feel are more buffered from whatever i'm worried about um and then be long those currencies and short the currency that i don't like which is canada um and you can do that pretty easily um with Aussie Canada or with Cadian which i know so i know you had the Cadian recommendation at one point and the the one issue with the yen is that it's essentially an interest rate proxy so whatever Canada does if US rates go up then dollar yen's going up and Cadian's probably going up so um i the way that i think that that or the pair that i think will work the best is is New Zealand against Canada um and i'm talking like 3 6 maybe even 12 months out um the reason is that i feel like even though i feel the recent reopening excitement is way overdone and is probably more of a positioning online than an actual macro event um just because reopening's not binary it wasn't in the US and it won't be in China it's like this boring gradual process where you don't even know if reopening's done i mean i still go to when i go to my optometrist i still have to wear a mask in there for some reason like it's the only place anyways um so given that it's it's not binary i don't think china reopening is something you trade as a short term trade but i think as a medium term trade it, it it's reasonable um you've been writing also about the china credit impulse has been getting a little bit better um and then if you look at sentiment for like anything related to china it's so textbook bad like uninvestable There were two economist covers this year that were bearish China which is super unusual because they don't usually focus on the same geography twice in one year. Um and then turn of the of the year to me sometimes brings turn of sentiment simply because there's like a psychological thing that humans have with round numbers, you know, January 1, no new thing, let's let's find a new theme. Oh, China rebound, that seems reasonable. Um and then if you believe in in the China rebound, it's probably going to be led by consumption not by uh, infrastructure and capex so that's why i'm picking new zealand and not australia so um there's also a tourism element of when people are allowed to leave china more freely um like cuz people are having trouble getting their passports renewed and stuff these days um when when travel resumes um the impact of china tourism on new zealand is just bigger cuz it's a smaller economy so relatively speaking it's bigger and then new zealand is generally an exporter of soft commodities which is more consumption related like cheese and milk and stuff like that 
whereas Australia is more hard commodities, which is more like capex and infrastructure. So long New Zealand um, on like a slow motion China reopening and increases in consumption, and then short Canada against it. Um, New Zealand does have some of the real estate problems. The thing is like every country except for the US basically has that, so you gotta pick your poison. And to me, New Zealand, the cycle had turned quite a long time ago in housing, so I don't find it as worrisome as Canada. Actually, I really like the um, discussion about the implementation itself. I mean, you talked about my Canada yen a while ago, which was a long-term macro thesis. But again, short term is the time frame when selecting those pairs and looking at these threads can be pretty important. And you know, it can be nasty with cost. implementation too. Sorry, Alf, I interrupted. I didn't mean to. Um, sure. One thing that can be nasty with implementation too is that sometimes the drivers of the thing that you're trading aren't the thesis that you're envisioning in your mind, right? So, like. Sometimes people will be trading Bitcoin because they think it's an inflation hedge, but really, you know, higher inflation at some point actually meant more Fed hikes. So you were right about inflation, but you were long Bitcoin at 58,000 and that's not good. So like understanding what is going to be the driver, I think that's one of the hardest things in markets, right? In macro is it seeing, reading the tea leaves, sometimes like it just makes sense. The thing that, you know, like, reopening the vaccine was good for reopening and all that and then like the, the, those kind of themes can be pretty easy to spot sometimes in macro but then actually finding the implementation and making money is is so much harder yeah so i remember posting a meme at the beginning of the year of a kid that says hey i predicted inflation to be 10 percent this year and the guy goes like how much money did you make well, I bought gold and Bitcoin. So <laughs> right, right, exactly. It, right? Yeah, so that's, that's exactly, I think, a good summary of that. But being short Canada in general here, however you think about the implementation itself, is a leg, the short leg I really like. Maybe just thinking out loud, consumer discretionary in Canada, if there is a sub-index, I'm not even aware, could be an interesting way to look at um, or home builders or any sort of Canada close proxy for real estate exposure within the equity sector. But in general, Brent, your thesis on Canada is, um, is very clear. So as the last thing, I would like to ask you to make sure the uh, audience here at the Macro Trading Floor knows where to find you after this very nice interview. Um, so the easiest way is just to go to spectramarkets.com and you can sign up for AMFX. And then my most recent book is Alpha Trader um, and that's on Amazon. So that's it. Or people can just email me, reach out. I read Alpha Trader. Geez, what a book. That's awesome. For anybody looking to take risks in markets, also subscribing to Brent's newsletter is a must-do. And Brent, thanks for being here. All right. Thank you, Al. Very happy to have interviewed Brent Donnelly, who's a friend, former risk taker in many seats on the buy side, and now the author of um, AMFX, a very good newsletter, and the president of Spectra Markets. And Brent came up with a trade, which is bearish Canada. And uh, it's expressed by a short Canadian dollar against, can be the US dollar, can be the New Zealand um, currency as a proxy for the China reopening play of 2023. But the most important lag is short Canada, which could also be expressed, for instance, shorting Canadian equities from, uh, from the thesis that Brent presented. So, Andreas, what do we make of the very reason why Brent is very bearish about Canada, which is their huge amount of private sector debt, mostly concentrated 
in real estate and the refinancing problems that Canada and many other jurisdictions are facing when it comes to higher interest rates. Let, let me flag a very good source of information when it comes to the risk surrounding private debt. Um, the Bank of International Settlements, um, they, they actually update a set of uh, so-called early indicators um, on the risks surrounding two high levels of private debt relative to the business cycle and uh, potential credit stress, right? And they have a flashing red signal in front of Canada, right now, Bank of International Settlements, and they have a flashing red signal in front of Sweden as well. Um, so why do I pick those two examples? Well, I think they have the same thing in common. They have an extreme exposure in households to the mortgage market. Uh, and by extreme exposure, I mean an extreme live exposure, basically. The average fixing of the mortgage is relatively low. Uh, we're very close to 100% floating interest rates in both of the countries, right? Very close to. Um, and that is obviously an issue when you go from zero interest rates to say five, 6% or whatever is the target now across the globe. Um, because, well, if you look at the households um, and the ability for them to service that kind of debt, in a scenario where everything else increases in price as well, then, um, well, you simply need to, to flag that risk. Uh, the cost of living crisis is more severe in countries with a high amount of floating interest rates in mortgages in the kind of, yeah. uh, of environment that we're in. Uh, so let me highlight Canada, let me highlight Sweden as two very bad examples of that. this. Uh, but elsewhere, um, you need to look to the eastern parts of Europe. Um, for example, Poland. Uh, mm. I've updated these statistics recently. Poland um, is a 100% floating mortgage rate system. <laughs> so, uh, and if you look at policy rates in Eastern Europe, then you know that shit will hit the fan in the, um, in the Eastern European uh, countries when it comes to the housing markets. Uh, Take a country like Hungary, it's very close to 100% floating rates as well, and they've gone from zero to probably 16 or 18% on average. Holy crap. Yeah. I mean, the, the way to look at it is that by refinancing your mortgage, basically you will double your monthly mortgage installment or very close to that because prices are, uh, well, prices in this case in refinancing doesn't matter, but because interest rates are so much higher than when you took your first mortgage in the first place and now you need to refinance, you're looking at a big increase in your monthly installment. And then, Andreas, what are you going to do? Either your salary has increased by 70% in the meantime, and I congratulate you on that, but on average, that's not really what happens. Right. Or alternatively, you have to cut your discretionary spending elsewhere, which then feeds basically into a, a slower economic growth, a recession, an earnings recession, etc., etc. which is basically the thesis that Brent was uh, bringing forward. Also, as inflation in Canada remains relatively high, it's very difficult for the central bank, as in everywhere else in the world, world to say, hey, I'm going to prioritize big times my real estate market. That can be a little bit of a trade-off, but really only a little bit of a trade-off. So when you see all these weaknesses appearing all at once, obviously, you have to expect some downside in uh, Canadian growth, uh, which will be reflected in earnings and probably in the currency. What we discussed with Brent as well is the time frame and the timeline and the implementation of these trades because this is something that could potentially take 12 to 18 months to unfold, slowly but surely. Let's say we got an oil rally, Andreas, then Canada is also considered to be an oil proxy currency. So what happens then? What's going to prevail is probably the terms of trade in the short term over the, on the currency and the potential earnings of the oil sector in Canada, rather than 
the slowdown in the real estate market and and the slowdown in consumer spending, which will take much more to unfold. So when it when you look at implementation, it's always important to structure trades in a way that they accommodate your time frame, both in how you structure them, the risk you take, and the volatility in the meantime. And it's it's not an easy task. I was short Canada uh, earlier this year, paired it wrong against the yen, so that really wasn't a good idea because anything against the yen this year actually rallied. And secondly, it was just you know way too much of a longer time frame trade um, to actually be put on a tactical book. So that's that's something to be uh, borne in mind. Yeah, it is. But I mean, if you look at how to implement this, um, I have a couple of ideas. One thing is to just straightforward try and look at the real estate sector. Uh, you can obviously do that via either um, select stocks in the home builder space or via pooled uh, indices of, of short exposure to home builders. I think that's a, a potential good uh, bet if, if you trust this story that the real estate market will um, suffer as a consequence of this um, high exposure to floating mortgage rates. The other way to do it is to go straight to the next source of stress in such a scenario. Um, and sorry to our old friends in the banking system, but they will eventually suffer if this is correct. a correct story. Uh, so I think from a perspective of what's baked in, what's not baked in, I'm more tempted to take this bet directly against the financial sector instead of looking straight towards the real estate market. Yeah, actually, it's a very good uh, good idea, and it's also easier to implement on a single name uh, basis and also on an index basis. But this reminds me of what my mentor taught me. Do not proxy trade. Like, literally, what's your trade? You're talking about Canadian real estate market? Okay, then short Canadian real estate. You can't, then try to be as close as you can to the very source of the macro driver behind the trade. Because I've seen so many bodies being piled up by people proxy trading because the thing was correlated or supposedly correlated to another and then the correlation breaks and then even if you were right you're dead wrong so it's a very good point from your perspective you know people could uh, if they agree on the thesis try to be as close as possible to the proxy uh, to the to the source of the trade which is the real estate market in this case hmm. so i i mean um for those, for those of you who have followed me for a while know that I've uh, been involved in real estate before um, professionally and I, I mean I, I honestly think that there is no basically almost no chance that the real estate market will get through 2023 without suffering um, it's been amazing how well it has held up so far True. but it's, it's pretty usual that the real estate market acts with a time lag to what's going on in interest rate space, what's going on elsewhere in the consumer basket, because it's very tricky to just uh, move away from spending on your housing, right? You cannot do that. So you really need to be forced into it. Uh, and I think next year is, is that exact timing. Yeah, I have to think uh, and to assess Andreas, the analysts are still in la la land when it comes to house prices, expecting drops of two to three percent across the board. I think a double digit drop is uh, the base case. And to be honest, people are impressed by that. But if house prices would drop 15 percent in the US, you would only go back to the beginning of 2021 house prices. 
it's not a disaster. It's just a healthy correction of the excesses we have seen in uh, in 2021. Yeah. And I guess that's probably one of the places where people are still overly optimistic about the resilience of the market. But but uh, let me throw a number uh, of interesting stats at you just uh, to conclude the discussion on on uh, interest rates and the real estate market. You're, you're pr- probably perfectly aware of this since you are at least partly based in the Netherlands. Uh, but if you take countries like France, Great Britain, the Netherlands, Germany, etc., the average loan to value at origination of a loan is plus 80%. In the Netherlands, it's plus 90%. It's above 90% on average. Um, so, I mean, at least for those newcomers uh, to the market in 2020 and 2021, that drawdown of 10, 15% would still be pretty material, right? I, I bought an apartment and just full disclosure here with a loan to value of 93% in summer 2021. Uh, so uh, let me put it like this. I am um, using everything I have <laughs> in terms of excess cash to bring down my debt right now. Yeah. Well, it's uh, the Netherlands is a very heavily leveraged market towards real estate. Um, it's very common to get 100% LTV over here, 100%. And a couple of years ago, it was 105%. So they will lend you more than the value of the house. So you could pay the notary and other expenses on the side. I mean, it's it's pretty impressive. So I, I also agree with you. We're going to see quite, uh, quite a drawdown there. Yeah, I think there's no way about it. Um, and I mean, maybe we should conclude on a slightly more positive note. I don't think it's the end of the world for real estate prices to go back to the levels they were at in 2019. <laughs> I don't think it's the end of the world if Nasdaq goes back to levels that we saw in 2019. By the end of the day, it could be seen as a sign of health if we get back to more reasonable valuations because it's simply fairer. Let me put it like that. Look, Andres, we wiped out supposedly about 30, 40 trillion dollars equivalent of uh, market cap across asset classes, not including real estate. Sounds an incredible amount, but that's just what we saw, partially what we saw in 2021 and the beginning of 2022. So if you are to bring down inflation and consumer spending through a reverse wealth effect, you probably have to do a bit more than that, which is just a normal healthy correction. I mean, seeing the S&P at 33, 3400 wouldn't be the end of the, of the world. It would just set us back to uh, more, you know, reasonable uh, long-term valuations and through an earning cycle that probably will be negative. I want to steal a couple of minutes from the show, if you would allow. I have quite some news, guys, and basically that is that I graduated the Macro Compass from uh, a newsletter to a a holistic all-round macro platform. The idea behind it is that uh, it's been a great journey with the newsletter so far, but to close the gap between the access to information, data, tools, etc., that the pros have and us, basically, from the retail camp, because I'm, I also am not in the institutional space anymore, a newsletter is not enough. So you need actually a platform, a platform that gives you, you know, access to tools, data, um, actionable investment strategy, um, reports, courses, all of that cannot be hosted on a single newsletter. So I moved everything to uh, the macrocompass.com, which is my macro platform now. Um, there will be the free offer will remain there, but there will be premium products on top of that for people that want to go through this macro learning journey uh, together. And um, of course, for the listening of listeners of the macro trading floor, because you guys are great, you get a 10% off code TMTF um, on the website for any products you would like to choose. And uh, that was it. 
best of luck with the uh, launch, Alfonso. Uh, I urge you all to, to go and check it out. Um, I, I know that you're doing great stuff, and uh, obviously this is another example of, uh, of that, Elf. Uh, I think we will leave it at that for this week at the macro trading floor. I'm uh, heading for the bar here at the Cayman Islands, so I'm going to see a, a few of our members, and um, hopefully we'll have some, <laughs> some fun. Um, and otherwise, um, we'll see you next week, Alfonso. Enjoy. See you next week.